welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. This week's topic, The Hidden Epidemic. Suicide is killing us faster than drugs. An interview with blogger Steve Austin. Suicide is not rare. It's killing our kids faster than drugs. It's the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S., the third after accidents and homicides for youths 15 to 24, and the fourth among adults 18 to 65. Men succeed in killing themselves more often than women. Which women, just goes to show you how great men really are. Well, we're always, we're always, <laughs> trying, to, we're always trying to prove something, right? <laughs> we have to prove that we can do it. That's right. <laughs> you have to prove that you can su- commit suicide more successfully than women. Than women. <laughs> that's right. Because even though that's the case, women try more frequently but fail more often. And it's not only a U.S. problem. WHO identified suicide is the third leading cause of death among people 18 to 44. That's the World the, Health Organization, by yeah, the way. World Health Organization in the entire world. Meet Steve Austin, a man who tried to kill himself, failed, and came back to become a happier guy. A former youth pastor masquerading as the perfect husband and dad, Steve <laughs> had been sexually abused and struggled with a culture of stuffed feelings. He is now a blogger, sharing in an open and honest way. Why did he attempt suicide? How did he feel when he failed? What has worked for him and his family? What can he share with you or a loved one? We all know someone who is mentally ill, suicidal, depressed, or anxious. It might even be you. Stay tuned for a deeper look into into and out of the pit. And now, here's Beth. Hi, welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. Oh, I'm so happy to talk to everybody today. We had a wonderful interview with uh, KHOI in Ames, Iowa, uh, this past week, it feels like it was 100 years ago. And so we got to meet our new friends in Ames. We're being syndicated on some of the Pacifica stations. And so, Steve, you're going to be in Ames, Iowa, too. And a number of other uh, Pacifica affiliates are have been uh, picking up, us up as well as Voice America. And um, so we that was a great that was a great time. Now, normally, as those of you who are listeners to our show know, this is the time that we start with the news of the interrevolution. Um, but today is different. And I'm not going to give you all the reasons why. But I could admit that we just ran out of time. But I don't want to say that on the air publicly. So I'm going to pretend there was some other reason. But actually, we ran out, ran out of time, and we weren't able to prepare the news of the inner revolution because <laughs> we were on the road. But let me tell you that there is something very interesting to share, and I am going to talk about something before we introduce Steve. Uh, normally, Steve, what we do is we give the James uh, reads the news of the inner revolution, which is just fascinating stuff about what's happening in our world. Some of it is stuff that people need to know in order to make intelligent choices, and some of it is news about what incredibly fabulous people are doing around the world to change it in a positive direction. That's like, that's how we found out about you. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. And uh, one of the thing, one of the reasons that we uh, asked Steve to be a guest was before I found out that he, about his suicide attempt, um, Steve had written a marvelous blog about how it's time for Christians to, oh, how can I say this without offending some FCC rule? Uh, to cut the you-know-what and stop trying to <laughs> pretend that there's something wrong with gay people and just let it be already. Um, this is my 
reframe of what he said. And I loved it. And here's a former youth pastor, and he's a Christian, and he's still a Christian. And he says, you know, it's time for Christians to really get this and drop this. So I loved that. And then when I did more research on, on Steve, uh, and Christine, our producer, uh, gives me a lot of information. Uh, then when I read his story about suicide, I was really, really struck. But... Um, the inner revolution itself is about oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And you see that story about gays and Christianity is really about the essence of spirituality, which is about oneness. And how can you say that you're a spiritual person if you go around saying you're okay, you were created by God, but you weren't? <laughs> you know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Only blue people are good, you know, uh, yellow people are not. So, you know, so this guy is into oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And that's what the inner revolution is about. But what I'd like to say, instead of us doing the news, is uh, there is a fascinating story today, which I happen to read on our way home, which is that the Pope is talking about setting up a commission to study. You know, you get that. Uh, setting up a commission to study the subject of women becoming deacons in the Catholic Church. It's about time. Isn't that a trip? And that means that women could do whatever women, you know, anybody else could do, except they can't hold mass. So, um, but they can marry people. They can do all kinds of other things. So isn't that about time? I mean, maybe someone has figured out that women are people too. So, and the article went on to say that it is true that there is uh, evidence that there were women deacons in the early uh, Christian church. It wasn't Catholic at that time because there was no Protestants. So, um, anyway, it's like we're catching up to our past. So, there are things that are happening in our world today that are showing us that uh, there is a movement, you know, and this is a, my commentary won't be very long, but I want to say this. We have a, um, a program called Campaign to Unite All Movements. It's on our Facebook page, um, which is Beth Green and the Inner Revolution. That's uh, what we're listed under. And the Campaign to Unite All Movements means that if you're gay, you need to fight for straight people. If you're black, you have to fight for white people. If you're white, you have to fight for Hispanic people. Uh, whites, uh, straight men have to fight for black women. You know, we all are one. And uh, if we don't get that, see, then we're in division and separation, which is all about ego, right? And so what I see as the real battle that's going on on the planet today is between those people who really believe in oneness and are willing to walk that talk and those people who don't. And I'm willing to make the fight. And people will say, well, isn't, that's not being in oneness. You're not being in oneness with the people who are not in oneness. And I'll say, well, you're right. I'm not. Because we are one. And this is the thing that we have to be changing in our mentality, that we can't 
discriminate against people for these arbitrary reasons that we have created in our minds. And I am going to fight for oneness, even if it means stepping on a lot of toes, and even if it means, and especially if it means stopping abuse. You know, people who talk about that, if I, I say to them, if you saw a six-foot-four guy beating a three-year-old at the local supermarket, would you say something, or would you say, well, I'm going to be in the oneness. He, can, he has a right to beat his child. Well, you wouldn't do that, would you? So it's no different. Whatever color, creed, nationality, race, uh, gender, whatever, uh, d- disability, um, uh, you know, uh, d- differences in intelligence and intellect doesn't make any difference. We are one and we have to fight that tendency we have to want to have a hierarchy where we are on top of that hierarchy. So, no, I am not going to accept that. I am not going to say I am not that to that person who's fighting against oneness. I'm not going to uh, put that person in prison. I'm not going to try to, uh, to kill that person. But what I am going to do is I'm going to try to stop them from being abusive to other people because it's our spiritual responsibility to stop the abuse and try to heal the perpetrator of any kind of offense. Whether you're a sex addict who's uh, engaging in child pornography or you're a drug addict or whatever you are, if you're doing hateful and hurtful behaviors We have to stop the behaviors, but we need to reach out with support to the person to try to see if they can't make that shift into oneness. Because I believe intuitively and instinctively we already know we're one. And something happened to us that turned us in the opposite direction. So, Steve, when I read your blog about Christianity and gay people, I said, here is an inner revolutionary because you're also making that fight Speaking up and saying, I can't sit around here and be passive and allow the abuse to my brothers and sisters. Well, uh, you know, it is it is my honor to, to be included in that circle. And uh, it has come through lots of trauma and tragedy and hard times and uh, finding out that the grace of God and the love of God doesn't uh, often look or sound like what we hear from the pulpit every Sunday, unfortunately. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> yep. And not only that, it doesn't always look like sugar and glop. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, some people have the idea that being spiritual means that you're supposed to just chant Om all the time or be sweet or hide your feelings or mm. pretend or say you're never mad or have no human feelings. I mean, if God created humanity, I mean, certainly God has figured out by this time that human beings have feelings and emotions, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, and, I think and, he's figured that out by now. I think <laughs> that would be she. So uh, uh, There you go. <laughs> and so, so anyway. You and uh, Anne Lamont must know the same God. Well, absolutely. Actually, my God is everything. It's, you know, my God is everything, the rapist and the saint, you know, because together we are God. So anyway, I think that we're on the same page, and um, I love what you're doing, and I'd like to, you to talk about what 
how, how this relates, because I think from reading your blog that this issue about trying to look like a good Christian rather than really being connected to yourself and others, that, that was part of what made you want to commit suicide. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, you know, I at the age of 28, I had been serving in ministry for a decade, like you mentioned, as a youth pastor and a worship leader, had um, a beautiful wife, and we had a little boy who would turn a year old the day after this event, uh, had a successful photography business, and a career as a professional sign language interpreter. And so, from the outside looking in, everything looked good. I was healthy, and and I seemed happy as could be, uh, very involved in the church, and had been raised in a, uh, a good conservative Christian home. And um, the unfortunate part about that is that I just, I learned very early on the art of faking it to make it, <laughs> right. uh, you know, keeping yeah. up appearances. Yeah. And, and I tried like hell to keep up appearances, and it, it nearly killed me. And so I lived that life for, goodness gracious, um, nearly 30 years. And um, yeah, September 22nd, 2012, um, shame tried to choke the life out of me. Shame and secret keeping, and uh, I'd been addicted to pornography for 20 years mm. uh, as a you know, as someone in ministry, and um, for you know, me, uh, sure. wait, wait, before we leave that, uh, I am so glad that you said that because there is so much, and I'm not uh, down on Christianity per se. I'm just down on what human beings do with religion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you sure. know, and so many people who are trying to toe the line on religion are so messed up sexually and they are into pornography or uh, they're having affairs or they're molesting children. It's like they don't know what to do with their sexuality. It's not healed. It's not connected to their spirituality. It's, it's like put in the basement like it's dirty. And so naturally you take a kid a sensitive kid like you must have been. And you don't know what to do with your sexual feelings. You have no real guidance or support. And so you have to find some kind of an outlet, and then you feel all ashamed, and you can't talk about it, and you never get any support. And, and who's going to support you? People who also don't know what to do with their sexuality. And so it's not surprising, I'm there, but, but you're one of the few people who will actually admit that. How many people... Are somebody is looking at pornography. So, well, last week we did a show. Was it last week? I think it was last week. We did a show on prostitution. You know, somebody is using prostitutes. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, somebody's keeping them in business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It can't be just the women are doing this. You know, and uh, and that's so so incredibly sad. And you have no idea how many people in your church were looking at pornography too. 
That's absolutely right. If you look at statistics today, I, I write for Covenant Eyes, which is uh, an app that uh, anyone who is struggling with pornography addiction can download onto any of their electronic devices, whether it's a tablet or a phone or a laptop, whatever it is, uh, they can download the Covenant Eyes app and it will hold them accountable. You set up an accountability partner and it doesn't block anything from your internet. It just monitors all of your internet usage and then sends a weekly report to whoever you've chosen as an accountability partner. And so I write for them. And in their statistics, it's uh, actually a study from the Barna Group, 66% of church-going, regular church-going men, now this is, you know, quote-unquote Christian, regular church-going men, 66% are addicted to pornography in some way, shape, or form. Isn't that sad? 66%. Yeah, it's huge. (laughs) I mean, that... Uh, uh, I've been thinking that we really need to have a show on sex and spirituality again. Oh, I agree. Yes. uh, I've been running a program. I ran a program for years called Sex and Spirituality about seeing that sexuality is sacred, but making it sacred by bringing God into our sexuality and not leaving God out. It's like what I was saying before, God is everything, the rapist and the saint. When you start having this like God is above us and goody two shoes and the judge and perfect and we're these slime balls you know what I mean? mm-hmm. that creates a hierarchy between humanity and god and we're always shamed there that it's just like built into the system but i i don't believe in that kind of a god that that's not how i see god mm-hmm. i see god as the totality in the process of evolution and and God is not perfect. God is evolving, and we're part of that evolution. So I don't need to get into a, a whole thing about that unless you're really interested. But it's, this is what happens when we start to uh, create these divisions of, you know, between what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, and saying this is godly and this isn't it. You leave people alone with their urges and their humanity and they don't know what to do with that. James, do you have anything you'd like to share about that or add to that, being another guy? Yeah. uh, One of the big lessons there, too, is uh, it's so important not to be left alone because then you don't have any support for staying on track with what you really want to do. Uh, And also, uh, I've been involved with the the program that you've talked about, the Sex and Spirituality, and it's really a a very sacred process of bringing uh, bringing in the God energies, inviting them, invoking them, and uh, clearing the energies between two people, clearing what uh, exists as barriers, impediments between the two people. And uh, it doesn't necessarily result in uh, sexual intercourse, uh, but it it results in a closer communion uh, with one another. Yeah, more oneness. So, okay, so Steve, of course I interrupted you, which I will over and over. But as uh, <laughs> soon as you say something, we, this is not a like a, one of those shows where I have like three questions. And then those uh. are, you know, it's, like, it's, it's more of a conversation and what you said really fascinated me. So I really appreciate your disclosing that. So go back to the 28-year-old who's, uh, anyway, I have to interrupt you because you've probably told the story so many times you're bored with it, but this way I'll keep you interested by asking you something else, so keep you hopping. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, so where do you want me to go from here? So go back to, you. it was the day before your son's first birthday, Mm -hmm. and uh, you were full of shame, and I'm glad that you mentioned, was it mostly around sexuality that you were feeling shame, or were there other things? 
yeah, I would say mostly so. Um, I was abused uh, sexually by a neighbor um, as a preschooler. I was not quite four years old, and um, so there was there was shame from from my own. Uh, abuse that I had carried around for years that had uh, never been dealt with, never had counseling over. It was never reported. Um, I, I was just never allowed to uh, to grieve that loss or to you know to find counseling or therapy or any of that. It yeah. just sort of was uh, swept under the rug. And um, you know, unfortunately, sweeping things under the rug uh, will not ever fix. Uh, such intense trauma like that—they're—they're they're deeper than the janitor's dust mop, and you can't just excuse it and and wipe it away. Not um, at all. Yeah. Had, had you ever had you ever told your parents about it? Yeah, my parents knew about it the day it happened. They knew about it that night. Um, they were giving me a bath. My mom was giving me a bath, and um, must have seen the red marks or whatever on my thighs, and um, and so I told them in my four-year-old little way what happened, yeah. and. Yeah. Uh, the, I was almost four and the boy next door was 17. So, uh, plenty old enough to, to know to better. Know better yeah. yeah. And, um, my mom had been tutoring this kid, uh, for quite some time and knew the family well. They were next door neighbors. You know, that's, that's usually how it happens. I hate to break it to people that it's not going to be the transgender stranger in the target bathroom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> flash. It's, uh, pretty much it's going to be that old nasty pervert uncle or the next door neighbor, somebody that knows your family well. Yeah, and, brother uh, or... Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that was certainly the case. Yeah, that's right. For that matter. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's not always a guy. You're absolutely right. And um, so, uh, so how did they how did they take it and what did they do with it? Well, um, I pieced all of this together years later. It was just never talked about. Uh, but mom, I, I found out once I was, mm, gosh, this was maybe two years ago now, um, that mom had been tutoring him after school and knew that his dad was a raging alcoholic. And uh, mm-hmm. she was 20, immature, didn't know what to do, thought she was doing the right thing. I, I don't have any ill will toward my mom. Let me say that up front. Uh, she thought she was doing the right thing, but she thought that if she reported, if she brought it up, if she went to his parents, uh, that who knows what would have happened to this boy. And oh. um, so I think that maybe she thought I was so little that maybe, uh, you know, it was a one-time thing it would, and it wouldn't have scarred me for life. Unfortunately, she was dead wrong. And uh, it rippled out through my life for three decades. Well, and, you know, it's not only that. It's a, how do you know that this kid isn't going to do it to somebody else? If, right. You know, and one of the problems with not stopping abuse which is, you know, the, the idea of Christian forgiveness. Yeah, but you got to stop the abuse or you got to g- teach accountability yep. because this boy wasn't getting any help with his problem. That's right. And I can totally understand the fear that the alcoholic father could have beaten him up. I mean, you know, why does a kid do that to start with? Something is going on in his life. Like, why are kids bullies? You know, it's not like they're born with a bully gene or something. So something is happening to them. And who knows what was happening to this boy. And so he never got any help either. So who knows how many uh, children he molested. And then he has to carry the scars internally of his own shame, which often will drive people to do worse and worse behavior because they feel so bad about themselves. That's so right. it's so many things are involved in that story that you just shared and, uh, and how sad. How do you think that, did, I mean, what is the impact that you think 
that you are tracing back to that event? Well, you know, so so there's that event. Then there's discovering pornography at the age of 12 and um, thinking that, you know, I had found the cure to cancer, but I couldn't tell anybody. You know, it was like right. for a 12-year-old, that's like the, you know, greatest thing in the world. And um, it, I hear some guys talk about um, – you know, that, that they watch pornography and it's just this casual thing and it might be once a week or once a month and it might be for five minutes or it might be for 15 minutes and you get this quick fix and you're done. But for me, it was daily for hours at a time coming uh. after school and be hooked until after bedtime. It was a, it controlled me and, uh, you know, and then on into my marriage and I, you know, I have this great, wonderful, healthy, active, beautiful wife and, um, you know, I, I was doing normal husband and wife things, but still addicted to pornography on the side. And, and did she know that? No, she didn't know that. And, and uh, your parents had never figured out that you were like in your room too long, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they trusted me so much or what, but I was, I was a great kid. I, I, for all intents and purposes, everybody looking from the outside in, I was this golden child and had great grades and I was involved in every club you could be involved in and president of this and that and uh, went to uh, George Bush, Baby Bush's inauguration as a senior in high school. I, I was doing all this, you know, really good stuff as a kid. So, yeah. um, I, you know, I, it wasn't a kid who was in trouble. I wasn't this, you know, dark kid who wore the dark clothes and the hoodies and, you know, was in yeah. trouble and antisocial. I wasn't any of that. I was just the opposite, uh, but very addicted at the same time. And On the outside. Uh, On the outside. Very, that's right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so you know, so I had all that shame from the from the pornography addiction, from the abuse that was never dealt with, and um, so at the age of twenty eight, there I am working an out of town a contract job interpreting two hours from home. I was there for two weeks in a hotel room by myself, and my thoughts just started to swirl. And it's sort of like what James talked about. Um, he touched on this whole idea of isolation and what a dangerous and, and terrible thing it is for someone who is an addict or someone who is struggling with mental illness, anxiety, yes. depression. I'd been on uh, anti-depression, anti-anxiety meds for a couple of years. And uh, so there I am by myself and my thoughts just started to swirl. And I I finally reached this point after two weeks of being alone that now, I said, wait, 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 wait. See, I told you I wouldn't stop interrupting you. So <laughs> this is, I think this is important. You were already on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications before your suicide attempt. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yet you're presenting it as though from the outside it looked like there was nothing wrong. Sure. Yeah. I didn't tell anybody I was taking a little white pill. But your wife knew. My wife knew, yep. And so you knew, your wife knew, so your doctor knew, somebody mm-hmm. knew. And right. while, um, you know, I know that depression can be, you know, have a very important physiological component, and I'm not saying people shouldn't take antidepressants, mm-hmm. but even then, just realizing you were already showing signs. You know, something was wrong, and it seems like, Nobody was picking up the message. Right. Yeah, there was there was never a push from a doctor, from a pastor, from anyone to say, let's do something more than just take a medicine. I am absolutely in support of someone who has a true uh, physiological mental something going on and need medication. You should take your medicine. 
But yeah. uh, no one pushed and said, you should see a psychiatrist. You should talk to a counselor. You need therapy. You need help. You need, there are things that we need to dig into in your past, you know, deep down in your soul in these dark cavernous places and and you need to get help. And so there's, I'm all for the medicine if it's something that's a true need and it's going to help you. But I think there has to be a balance of several other things too. There's so many more ways to recover than just taking a pill. Yeah, see, you know, I, I don't know. Steve, I'm wondering, listening to your story and kind of digging around a little bit in the basement of your mind. So <laughs> if you were addicted to pornography from the time you were, I think you said 12, and you spent every day you looked at pornography and you spent hours looking at pornography, I, and I, 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 I don't know, maybe I'm, it's out of line to say this, but I can't believe that nobody noticed that something that you, you know, that you were spending too much time in your room or, you know what I mean? It seemed at just well, like here I, I don't you know, are if, taking if you look at 66% of men in the church addicted, there are pastors who are addicted, there are deacons and yes. Sunday school teachers and all that, and people don't know. So I, I know that it sounds surprising uh, if maybe it hasn't affected your life in a personal way, but it is far more common than we realize. Oh, no, no, no. I, I am like, believe me, I'm very familiar with that, and I agree with you. But I'm talking about, like, parents not noticing that picking something up. Now, I'm sure it is possible, um, but, you know, lots of married men use pornography, and I've seen situations where, you know, the wife walks in and she just sees it on the Internet, mm-hmm. or she, you know, it's on the cell yeah. phone. Yeah, I can something. remember uh, being caught, and that's that's the most embarrassing thing in the world. I can remember being caught by my mom one time as a uh, teenager. I must have been 15 or 16. But I think that at least then, and I hope things are different now, it will certainly be different in my house. Um, yeah. But I think at that time, it was still such a taboo, embarrassing sort of a thing that my mom didn't want to talk to me about it. I remember my dad laughing about it. Yeah, and, because he was probably looking at pornography also. So Yeah, and so it was just no, it was just no big deal. It was yeah. either not a big deal or it was a big deal such that we weren't going to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's more like it. And so I just wanted to, see, I'm glad you said that and this is really important because we're talking about sexual addictions but we're also talking about suicide and we're looking Mm -hmm. at all of the things that people could have caught or might have noticed that they didn't deal with all along the way before you ever get to that night where your head is swirling see Mm -hmm. where people don't want to face or they don't want to confront or they don't want to make their husband angry or or it's so much a part of the culture that they think it's funny or and and they're not willing to acknowledge that there's something wrong and that just because 66% of the men are doing it doesn't mean that it isn't unhealthy you know Absolutely. A, a, it's like alcohol people a lot of people drink that doesn't mean that it's good for you so it's this kind of thing. So that's why I'm just stopping you because I'm p- noticing several points in your story where somebody close to you, a parent, a wife, a friend, I don't know, might have picked up that something was wrong and didn't. Didn't pursue it, didn't want to pursue it. I don't know what. Mm. And I'm not trying to be judgmental towards any of these people. Well, you know, I can remember there was um, there was a time at 
12 or 13, maybe 14, um, that I confessed that struggle with uh, a youth leader, uh, uh. one of the adults in the church that helped. And, and even then, um, it was, there was a prayer of faith, you know, oh, let's pray that Jesus will set you free from this right, addiction, right. you know, and, and move on. And, but it, there was never a follow through. There was a, never a follow up. There was never any sort of accountability. How are things going? Are you good? Yeah. Are you struggling? You know, nothing. It was, we're going to pray and you're going to take a magic Jesus pill and everything's going to be all right. Yeah. And that unfortunately is just not real. Whether you're an addict at 12 or an addict at 50, that's yes. just not how it works. That is so true. See, I'm very glad that you shared that too, Steve, because look at all these missed opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, missed opportunities to help you before you got so overwhelmed by shame and isolation mm-hmm. uh, that you felt like you had no way out. And if you're told that if you take the magic Jesus pill, that this addiction will be lifted from you and it doesn't work then you're going to feel even worse because even sure. Jesus can't help you. <laughs> That's right. I'm so <laughs> you know? far gone that he can't. Yeah, so. yeah, which just yeah. makes you triply shamed. Right. So, yeah, okay, so there we are. So now we're back to 28. See, I, I, I may get, we may get to the actual attempt sometime <laughs> before the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there we are. And um, I, I just felt like I was at the end of my rope and that the best choice for me was to escape via suicide and spare my family, you know, me doing anything worse or more stupid or, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and, and that well, just, what was it, what was it that you were afraid you might do? It, is it was still like your, your shame about your sexuality and, and your, and the pornography mostly at that point. Yeah, mm-hmm, absolutely. I, and, and what were you afraid that you might do that that it might get even worse? Mm, I don't know that there's anything specific, but, um, you know, when you combine all that shame, you combine the addiction and you combine depression and anxiety all together. Yeah, I mean, that's a, yeah. it's a cocktail for disaster. Yeah, it's a lethal cocktail. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so I, you know, had bottles of anti-anxiety, a bottle of anti-anxiety met a bottle of uh, anti-depression and went to the pharmacy, two or three local pharmacies there uh, in the town where I was and bought up a bunch of Tylenol PM and uh, crushed it up in, into some hot tea and took tens of thousands of milligrams of medication. And um, mid-morning, I didn't show up for the next day. Mid-morning, I didn't show up for uh, my assignment. And the clients became concerned and they found me about 10 hours after the fact uh, in the hotel room, and uh, about 18 hours after that, I woke up in ICU in a fog like I have never experienced before. And um, if you think shame is bad already, then yeah. fail a suicide attempt and think, my God, I can't even get this right. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so there I am in, in ICU, and my wife is there, and her best friend's there. They've driven the two hours plus uh, to come and find me. And uh, boy, I'm, I'm forced to face my demons. I'm there without an ounce of pretense or performance. I've got yeah. nothing to offer, but just I am a wreck and I need help. And mm-hmm. what do we do now? Yeah. Well, and it's fabulous that that's 
where you got to with that because you could have just quietly and patiently waited till you got out so that you could succeed. Well, that was my first thought. That was absolutely my first thought was, you know what, I can just, let's just get through this and... And instead of pills, you know, it'll be a gun or it'll be the car and the right. overpass or whatever. You, by the way, when I was doing a little research on suicide for this show, they said that women use poison and men use guns. See, yep, you're just right. not manly enough on top of everything. Uh, yeah, well, that's right. That if was my struggle had, for 30 years. <laughs> right. If you had been manly enough, you would have used a gun. That's why men yeah. are successful in committing suicide. Yeah, that's exactly uh, right. Oh, my God. So... What turned you around to not do that? What turned me around? You know, I had three days in ICU where they wondered if my liver was going to fail. I couldn't feel my legs for those first three days. They were completely numb. And uh, so when you're sitting watching paint dry and you're coming in and out of consciousness, um, you have a lot of time there. But I heard... God, as I know him, I heard, I felt this impression on my spirit that said, I'm not finished with you yet. Uh. And I knew that it wasn't me because I was so full of shame, you know, and all I had spoken to myself was self-hatred and, and self-condemnation yeah. you know, condemnation and criticism yeah. and just all this negative, everything negative. And yeah. so to hear this voice from somewhere greater than me yes. that said, I'm not finished with you yet. I thought, oh my God, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? And so so I logged that one back for future reference. And, uh, and then they wheeled the youth pastor and the worship leader down the long hall to the psych ward. And um, boy, you talk about a wake-up call. You hear that door lock behind you, that giant metal door, and realize that um, (laughs) you're not here to visit someone or encourage anybody. (laughs) You're here because you have found yourself at the bottom of the barrel. Um, It it was quite a wake-up call. And and to be honest, the psych ward was frustrating. It felt very pointless. Uh, I I had no idea what the point was in being there. We, We colored construction paper and we cut out words out of magazines and glued them on you know we did arts and crafts type stuff and we talked yeah. about our happy sad mad glad moments you know and and I was there with real crazy people Beth you know yeah <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so so in the moment it felt very frustrating. Uh, we're working on, you know, eating three meals a day and taking a snack and taking a nap and talking about our feelings. And I thought, what are we doing? You know, um, <laughs> how ridiculous could this possibly be? I'm above you know? that. I'm yeah, above I've that. got work to do. I need to go provide for my family. You know, right. let's just shove this stuff under the rug for another 30 years. Right. And uh, it wasn't until I got out and and really started practicing what I'd learned and got into very intense individual therapy, very intense marriage counseling, and really began to dig deep and learn about shame and learn about vulnerability. And all of these things that I had buried for so long that I realized the psych ward is actually very much like the church. (laughs) If you think about it, When I was at the psych ward, here I am with people 
some of whom are at the end of their rope, the bottom of the barrel, the most hopeless they've ever been, and they're looking for answers. Maybe they're looking for a quick fix. Maybe they're looking for tools to actually recover, but they're at the end of their rope. And we've all got this common goal of getting out of here, (laughs) number one, (laughs) but we've got this goal of recovery. Hopefully, Um, we're all supporting one another. We're in a safe place where we can say, this is the crap that is, you know, this is this is the darkness inside of me. This is what really wants to ooze out if I would just open up and let it out. And we're in that safe place where, where you know, nobody can tell anything. They're not going to blab. They're not going to gossip. This is all going to stay right here. And I realized, my gosh, that's really what the church is like or could be like. You're with people who are sharing a common goal. You're with some people who are at the end of their road. And it could be whatever church looks like for you. It could be a very safe place, a beautiful place to go and lay down your burdens and rest and say, oh, man, I just, you know what, today I just need to breathe deep. (laughs) And, And so there's really a lot of parallels between the two. Well, that's fascinating. You know, we have an organization, uh, a nonprofit called TheInnerRevolution.org. And we started as a counseling, spiritual counseling community back in 1983 when I founded the organization, but we called it The Stream then. And uh, I'm an intuitive. I do intuitive counseling. And I, I hear that voice that you're talking about all the time. It just runs my life, even when I don't like what it says, you know? <laughs> so, uh, and I've had that inner voice since 1980 when I just had this psychic awakening when I, I went through a crisis of my own, very different, but, um, and then I founded this, this or- group of people and people came together and I would do counseling, but more than that, and this is more the parallel, is we would do groups and people would talk to each other honestly and we would all develop our intuition and our ability to intervene with each other and to see things in each other that that we didn't want to admit you know that that I see this in you and you see this in me and we and we were just willing to let all this crap come to the surface and it's so critically important and whether it's you're really angry at God or you hate your wife or you hate yourself or you know the, the, the first time you ever had sex, it was with a peacock. Whatever it is, there has to be that place where we recognize. In fact, when I did my sex and spirituality workshops, I would always start with, okay, raise your hand if you have ever done this. Uh, looked at pornography, gone to a prostitute, been molested, molested somebody, uh, you know, had sex with, a, with an animal, uh, been unfaithful, and so on. And people in the room would get more and more comfortable. They would raise their hands. And before you know it, you'd realize how many people were doing exactly the same thing you were doing. And, but just not admitting it. And so all of a sudden, this whole thing becomes normalized. And I don't mean normalized and to say that it's healthy, but normalized in that you don't think that you're some kind of a weird pariah you realize that this is part of the problems of our humanity at this time in history, and maybe at always, and that we need to support one another. And so our community is based on self-awareness and total honesty and confronting ourselves and one another, and people really change. 
they really change and it's all comes out and it's it's a long process really because there's always more no matter how much crap you seem to skim off the surface there always seems to be more bubbling up (laughs) (laughs) yes the human cesspool (laughs) it is it's amazing and you know we use the divine guidance and the and the spiritual energies to actually help us to heal rather than to make us feel shame. So I totally get what you're saying and that this is, you know, that's what we do. We have a men's group that is incredibly honest and self-revealing. And also, not only do we talk about ourselves, but we have a commitment to reach out to others because, you know, you can only work on yourself so long before you just puke. (laughs) You know, if you're not helping somebody else, you really don't ever, ultimately, you can't get well. So there has to be a giving and uh, a helping feeling because that's really what gives us the self-esteem that if we had it to start with, we wouldn't be doing all this stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that is just wonderful that, that even the, that stint in the psychiatric hospital helped you and then you went into, into therapy. Now, I'm going to ask you, you have gotten to the point where you are very honest about yourself. Now, are you, and if you don't want to answer this question, you say, I'm taking the Fifth Amendment on that. <laughs> but I'm just kind of curious, are you as honest about others and towards others about them as you are about yourself? Yes and no. Um, I think if it is, do I offer it if I've not been asked my opinion? No. Um, but I think if if you're practicing vulnerability with someone, yeah. um, you know, and, and you know that you're with someone who's a safe place and someone you trust and who trusts you and, and who values your opinion and wants that and is open to all of that, yeah. um, then certainly. But, um, you know, there, there are relationships in my life that are um, unhealthy, but that are... Um, you know, I'm stuck with them for the duration because they're family. And um, <laughs> would I walk up to those certain people and just tell them what I think? No. No, I wouldn't. Was that as vague as I could possibly be? Oh, yeah. I, without just saying who I'm talking about? Uh, <laughs> Read between the lines, Beth. Be intuitive here. <laughs> I picked that one up. So anyway, that's really funny. <laughs> Well, you know, I can understand that, and there are certain people that it's just hopeless. You know, I have tried over and over with certain people to to be honest and to speak from the I am that perspective and be self-disclosing. But, uh, you know, if if people want to beat you up forever, they, they may be addicted to that, and there just isn't much that you can do about it. And that's one of the things that we see. But as society as a whole, as I think you probably have gotten this the flavor of what our inner revolutionary radio is like and all the work that I do, my blogs and my videos and all of that. It's like, just tell it like it is and to say it to the collective because people, if you're talking to the collective, that person on the other side might actually be willing to acknowledge that it's them if you're not saying it to them personally. (laughs) So, you know, use your laser beam awareness, but don't, focus now if somebody comes to one of my workshops they're in for it but they've that, that's what they're paying me for right absolutely <laughs> but you know the rest of us we have to be we have to start getting extremely honest about our society 
about the sicknesses that it allows. And I see that in, your, in the story of your life. You know, the sicknesses that our society allows. And why? Because everybody, you know, the people who are there to help you are sick too. So I, I can say that with some compassion, but we have to stop. You know, we have to start getting gut-wrenchingly honest and not hiding behind religion or atheism or whatever it is that we're hiding behind or, sure, you know, politics. So now since that time, Steve, have you ever thought of having, of, of committing suicide again? You know, I can say no to that. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the way to answer this most accurately. Yeah. Um, have I thought about committing suicide again? No. Are there days that I wish a friend of mine said this the other day? He said, I'm not suicidal and I never have been, but there are days I wish I could crawl down in a hole and meet Jesus and it would just all be over. Yeah. You know? I, oh boy, do I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so do I have those days? Sure. Does stress get the best of me at times? Sure. But have I ever... Um, planned it out that much. You know, I left that weekend. So that would have been Sunday night. I left and went a whole week until that Thursday night. So yeah, so basically a whole week. And I knew when I left that Sunday night that I'd never see my wife and kids again. So have I ever been to that point where it was that um, premeditated? Absolutely not. Uh, I am, I'm in love with my life. I'm in love with my wife. I'm in love with my kids. I have a daughter now. I don't have just a little boy. I have a little boy and a little girl. And, um, my goodness, I thought that freedom only came at altar calls and prayer benches and Benny Hinn crusades. And, I have found that true freedom comes when we are honest with ourselves and we're honest with others. And we, we do what Brene Brown says. And, and she says, can I say ass? Okay, good. I hope so. Because um, I'm going to. But Brene Brown says, if, if you're not in the arena with me, getting your ass kicked with me, then your opinion doesn't count. Yeah. And there's so much freedom there. And I used to think to be a Christian, it's like you were talking about earlier, that you have to be sugary sweet and this big, you know, lumpy, lumpy pile of mush. But, but it's so not true. You have to take care of yourself. And part of taking care of yourself and being kind to yourself is having some boundaries and telling people who don't get where you are or respect where you are or even believe where you are yes. that, you know what, you don't get to have a say in my life. Uh, right. I would like to have a relationship with you. I respect yeah. you as a human being, but if you don't respect me, I'm going to draw the line right here. And so, you know, that's how it is with my wife's family. Unfortunately, since the suicide attempt, they have zero to do with me. Um, I, I think they would have rather that I had succeeded. But <gasps> while that broke my heart for a solid year after, I'm finally at the place where I say, you know what, my heart breaks for you because of the of the place that you're at where you don't understand that grace is just not a word that is spoken from the pulpit, but that grace is universal. We all desire a second chance. We all desire another opportunity to get up and dust ourselves off and try again. Well, and, and the fact of the matter is they have their own secrets. That they, oh, you know, certainly. Yeah, it's really a miserable it, place to live. It's a miserable place to live. We mm -hmm. could say we're sorry for you, but you... So I'm going to ask you now, I want to make sure that I get this question in before we're going to have to wrap up, which sure. is if you have 
uh, suicidal ideation or you know somebody who does, what should you do? Give us a helpline or something just for people who are listening in. Yeah, let me pull that up. Um, well, you can go to IamSteveAustin.com. How about that? There's a shameless plug for you. Oh, um, go ahead. Plug, but, plug. <laughs> but, but no, um, I'm trying to pull up the number right now on my tablet while we talk. While um, he's doing that, the idea is reach out because mm-hmm. somebody in the world knows where you're at because they've been there too. That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah, there. You know, if I if I rattled off some ways to recover, there are there are numbers that you can call. There's um, the National Institute for Mental Health that you can call. You can look it up. The suicide hotline. They're all there online. Um, but yes, reach out. Um, consider medication. Find a good counselor. Stop apologizing. You don't owe anybody an apology for your anxiety or your panic attack or your depression, your mental illness. You don't. Find a strong support system. Get good, solid, uninterrupted sleep. Eat good, nourishing foods on a regular schedule. Get some exercise. You don't have to go to the gym and be a gym rat, but just get some exercise. Take a walk for half an hour and get some sunshine. Yeah, (laughs) <laughs> and the biggest thing I would say is focus on the recovery, not the stigma, because so many people focus on, oh, my gosh, I've got this problem. Oh, my gosh, I'm weird. I'm less than I, you know, I'm in such need of help. I have to take a little white pill every day, whatever. But when you focus on that instead of the recovery, you just you lock yourself in this cage of shame. And it's so hard to get out of. And remember, we're all defective. And, the, and this, this goes back to that idea. I'm going to have to shut up in a second and let James tell us what we're doing next week. But this goes back to this idea that God is perfect and we're shameful. God is not perfect and we are not shameful. You know, if we're made in the image of God, let's get that. Oh, I must be made in the image of God. God must be, you know, going through some kind of process here. That's how I like to put it. But the whole idea is that we are not shameful and we're all the same. You know, when you get right down to it, we're all the same. So whatever secret you have, 25,000 people are doing the same thing this afternoon. And so we're not, it's, we don't have some kind of terminal uh, illness of our own because we are so similar. So, James, tell us what we're going to do next time. And then maybe I'll even give this guy a chance to say goodbye. <laughs> next week, God, hierarchy, and blown opportunities. Breaking the addiction to God and opening the channels to be sourced. Spiritual or not, this show is for you. What does it mean to be addicted to God? What's the alternative? Almost all of us are being blocked from the universal energies that could support us to be more well, happy, and beneficial to others. And boy, do we need those energies. Most of us are stressed and stretched to the max and could use a little wholeness, well-being, and inner power. But to achieve these states, we have to get beyond hierarchical ways of relating to God and one another, and instead start learning to tap into the power of the universe. And that's not easy, especially when our whole paradigm of God the Father blocks us from doing just that. How does God the Father block us from the source? How can we shift our paradigm and learn how to connect to the universal energies to support us all? Religious, spiritual, atheist, you're invited to tune in and learn more about universal power how to experience it, and channel it to others. Join us. We, we should never use God to shame us. The power of the universe or God or whatever you want to call it is there to help us. 
Thank you, Steve. Bless you so much for your honesty and for what you've shared today. Oh, thank you for having me. Bye. Till next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.